This morning we are reading out of John 11, verses 28 through 54. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews, who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also kept this man from dying? Then D Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always heard me, but I say this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And he did not say these of his own accord, but being a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also together into one of the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Lord God, we thank you so much for this amazing opportunity to come together and worship you as you are worthy of worship and worthy of praise. And Lord, how awesome is it that you are a God that weeps with us but raises people from the dead. We praise you and honor you for that. I ask that you would bless this time that we would learn and grow in our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. With this very important point in the Gospel of John, you might call it a high mark, uh, if, if you could do John in two simple divisions. Um, the, the first part, first 11 chapters, would be uh, the public ministry of Jesus. 
Second part would be the passion ministry of Jesus. Jesus dies, right, for the sins of the world. John the Baptist predicts that. And all, but if you just want the simplest division to see the, the flow of the Gospel of John, it's the public ministry of Jesus. It covers this group of years leading up to it. And then the passion ministry, the suffering ministry of Jesus over the, about the last week or so of his life. Where are we? Well, we're, we're at the very end of part one in the, the Lazarus narrative. It's a, an important scene. Uh, it's, a, it's a sign that transitions us into part two. It's, a, it's something that actually foreshadows part two. What happens with Lazarus is a sign of what's to come. And so he's, he's moving us from what is the public ministry of Jesus all about? That Jesus is the point of the Gospel of John, and the message of John is believe in Jesus. What's the point of, of it? You see it in the Lazarus narrative. And then it shows up uh, as we begin about chapter 12. So we're going to talk about the bulk of the Lazarus narrative uh, this morning. And it lays out in three scenes. The first scene is death and grief. Verses 28 through 37. In the early part of the section, there are two sisters whose brother has died. Lazarus has died. He's in the tomb by the time we get to this passage. And Martha is one of the sisters. She's already had her conversation with Jesus. And she comes back uh, to the house, and now she tells Mary uh, to go talk to Jesus. We don't have all the details. Listen, anytime you read uh, a narrative in Scripture, mostly it's very efficient. It doesn't tell you what color of shirt uh, they were wearing or how tall somebody was unless that's an important detail. Very efficient narrative. It moves it along. And so somehow Jesus has given her the word, Martha the word, and she tells her sister Mary, listen, the master wants to talk to you. And she says it. Did you notice in the verse it says in private? Now, why in private? There's some different theories, but most likely... It's that you'll also notice that there's a kind of a group of people around. They've been around since verse 19. It's the, the show up again and again, the Jews. In other words, people from Jerusalem who are there. It's very common that when there had been a death, uh, your friends and, uh, and, you know, and, and people you were connected to would come around and comfort, show support. And that's what they were doing. Uh, Mary, Martha, Lazarus were evidently family that you know was connected they had influence and that sort of thing so they had people from jerusalem come to their little village in in bethany and so the reason most likely that uh, she told her in private is so that those people wouldn't hear so that she could have uh, a more private conversation with jesus less intense scrutiny uh there but you know mary's not subtle here whenever she tells him uh, when, when Martha tells her sister Mary, listen, Jesus wants to talk to you, she just gets up and goes. She's like, like really fast. And everybody in the house is a, who's around with her just th- thinks she's going to the tomb. She's not going to the tomb just yet. She's going out to meet Jesus. Jesus is exactly where he was when he and Martha had the conversation. He's outside their little village. And the whole group goes with them. And they're going to watch everything. And once Mary sees Jesus, verse 32... It says, um, she came to where Jesus was and saw him. She fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Right to the point, right? She falls at his feet, which is different than Martha, her sister. She asks him a question, which is exactly the same as Martha. 
You know, if you'd been here, this wouldn't have happened. You had the power to prevent this, but you didn't. It lingers. Um, everyone, as the, as the narrative moves, as, as the scene moves, everyone weeps. It says Mary's at his feet and she's weeping and Jesus sees this and it says the people around her are weeping. There's a flow. Verse 33, now when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her were also weeping, he was moved. And then John eleven thirty five, Jesus also weeps. He's through that, he says, Remember, he's outside the village at this point whenever they, they come to uh, meet him. And he says, let's, let's go to the tomb. So they take him to the tomb. And there's there twi- two times that it says in the, in the bigger passage that Jesus was moved. It's an interesting word. It means to be like emotionally moved, but it's, it's almost always laced with indignation and anger. He's mad about something. He's crying and he's mad. Jesus weeps. Why the anger? Kind of a little point here. A lot of theories about this. And certainly in, in our circles, in evangelicalism, there are a lot of theories about why was Jesus mad? And people speculate. We don't have a lot to go on. But people sometimes speculate. And one of the things that they'll say is, Jesus saw all the unbelief. You know, the sisters aren't really believing. The people there aren't believing. And he's angry. And then he you know, does what he does. I, I think the safer conclusion is more general. Because you, I think you have to connect his indignation and his weeping. Death is hard. And death hurts the people you love. Death hurt the people Jesus loved. Um, it's, a, it's the great reminder of the great sadness, right? Everybody you hug, you let them go. Everybody. Jesus weeps too. Everyone weeps. And so the people see this at the end of this first section. There's all this death and grief uh, surrounding the death of, of Lazarus. And the people comment, verse 36, see how he loved him. Like they're watching him and they go, now, now get this, there's a tension. Because they follow it up and they comment on something. They, they, you can tell that Jesus is there and he's weeping and they're like, like he really cared. But the other side of it is people are thinking, but yeah, I mean, if he cared so much, why didn't he just make it a little bit earlier and he would have prevented all of this? Again, the tension. It's, everybody's wondering the same thing. The sisters are wondering that. The people are speculating about this. Why does this make sense? He essentially allowed him to die. He just let his friend die. What goes? What gives? The second scene is the great sign. It transitions from that, from, from the weeping and the questioning and all that. And verse 38 describes the tomb. This is very normal. Like we, we have cemeteries, places where we bury uh, folks, but they had a tomb and the, uh, that's where, the, where they would bury people. And they were either, you know, or a cave, and it was either natural, like a hole in it that you'd go into, or it was hewn, right? You chipped it out so you'd have a place to put the body. And they had a way they prepared the body. They'd put ointment on it and they'd wrap it in cloths. Not like the Egyptian mummification where it's wrapped really tight, uh, really tightly. They, it was looser than all of that. But they would put them in, you know, a, a rock tomb, a cave. And that's where they had let the body decompose and they'd put a rock over the entrance. All very normal to protect it. Like, well, to protect everyone. To protect the body from 
you know, possibly thieves or uh, critters or anything like that, but also to protect the people around from the, like the odor. You know, it's unpleasant when things decompose and the human body is big enough that when it decomposes in an enclosed space, it's going to emit an odor that let's just call it foul and unpleasant, okay? It's going to be gross. And so they put the big rock over there. And here's one of the things that they would do. Like I said, this was all very normal. You put, you know, that deceased, that loved one in a cave as a tomb, and you cover it with a rock, and that body over about a year's time is going to decompose. And then they would come back with a bone box. They called it an ossuary. And they would collect the remains, the bones, and put it in a box, and then somebody else could use the spot. Right? So they just, you know, it's, they, they had their own way of, of doing it. But anyway, the rock is in place. It's been four days. Very clear. So they, Jesus says, let's, let's take this stone away. And there's this element there in verse 17 and in verse 39. It's been four days that Lazarus has been in the tomb. Whatever else is like, you're going through it, you go, whatever else Lazarus is, he is certainly dead. Like, he's very dead. There's no question of his deadness. He's very dead, right? And, and so much so that Martha protests. You know, she's like, listen, the body's going to be decomposing something fierce. I'm not sure that we should do this. It's been four days. And Jesus reminds her that he told her, he told his disciples this before they even made the journey, Listen, you're going to see the glory of God in this. And he told her, if you believe, you believe, you believe on the resurrection and the life, if you believe, you're going to see the glory of God. Um, and so they do. There must be belief there, right? Because Jesus, wouldn't, they would have had to comply. So Martha, the sisters would have to say, okay, let's do this. And uh, they remove the stone. And the next thing Jesus does is he prays. Kind of an interesting prayer uh, because he's praying publicly, he's praying out loud, and it's clear he's not doing it for himself because he says, Father, I know you hear me, right? We've talked about this before. We talk all the time. And he says, I'm doing it for those of, look at, look at verse uh, 42. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Um. He's got a purpose. Whatever he's going to do, he prays, and then he's going to do. And what the idea there is, when he prays to God out loud, and they're just standing around, there's not much else for them to do, then Jesus is going to do what he's going to do, and they can connect the two. God is in this so that they'll believe. That's what he, that's what he wants them to do. So people are going to stand around, okay, Jesus prayed to God, and then whatever he's going to do, connect these. And what does Jesus do? Well, he raises Lazarus. Very simply, it's not a lot, it's not an intricate process. You know what I mean? It's not like the book of, you know, Frankenstein or anything like that. It's not like you've got all this theory and science to go into it. He raises him simply by his voice. It says in verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. He just speaks. And it happens. Just his voice. What does that remind you of? Like Genesis 1, right? Where God, in the beginning, God speaks, let there be, and there be. This is going to happen, and it happens. And Jesus is showing something of who he is whenever he speaks, 
and it happens. I love the way, look at verse 44, because whenever you read a big like passage, a lot of times you can just kind of blow through it, right? I love this. The man who had died came out. Right? I mean, there's lots of people in the history of the world who have gone to a graveside and they've talked to a loved one and that person never talked back. Anyway, Jesus uses his name. Guys in, in, in my spot and academics and all that point out that Jesus uses his name. Lazarus, come out, is what he says. Lazarus, come out. Cries out with a loud voice. I guess when you have that kind of authority, you have to be specific. You know, because otherwise, like last day, you know, everybody's going to rise on the last day, right? But you keep in mind that Lazarus is dead. He's certainly dead. He's been in the tomb for four days. And dead Lazarus obeys the voice of Jesus. Comes out of the tomb. The great sign of resurrection. And then the, the third scene is uh, the leaders plan to kill Jesus for it. It starts with the, the, the Jews in, in verse 45. You see that little phrase? You can track the presence of these, these folks. It's, what it just really means is the general populace who's around Jesus at the time, and there's a connection in between uh, Jesus and his followers and the religious leaders, and you've got uh, these folks who are connected to both all throughout the narrative, and you can just track them. Like a, a real easy way to track them is verse 19. They're there to comfort the family. Come from Jerusalem to the little village of Bethany to comfort the family. And then you can see in verse 31, they're around, they're in the house when Martha tells Mary to go meet Jesus. They follow her out. And then in verses 36 and 37, they're, they're there to witness it. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they, they see the tomb and what Jesus does there. And, and they're weeping. And in verse 42, they hear his prayer. And in verses 45 and 46, they've seen the great sign. They see the miracle. He raises Lazarus from the dead, the Jews. All right? They're a character in the narrative. And it lays out in, in these two verses, many but some. Okay? Many but some of this group. It says, many of them saw what he did, verse 45, and they believed in Jesus. The whole point of the Gospel of John is that you'll, you'll see who Jesus is and you'll, you'll put your trust in him. You'll believe in him for life. And it says many of them did that. Many believed uh, because of the sign. And then in the very next verse it says, but some, they went back to HQ. They, went, they go back to Jerusalem and they tell the leaders there, hey, listen, this is what happened. It's, I, I don't know. That there's, there's not a lot of the tone of it. It, it doesn't seem like they tattled. But it kind of comes off in the narrative like that, you know? Uh, some of them, they, they see it and they believe, and the others go back to headquarters and like, you're never going to believe what happened here. Well, what do the leaders do with that? In verse 47, what are we to do? That's their question. Big question. Um, word gets back and they, it says they gather the Sanhedrin, the council, kind of like our Congress, you know, uh, and, you know, supposedly important people who get together and talk and make decisions and uh, that sort of thing. But their great concern is not, is God in this? Right? Jesus talks about this all the time leading up to this. I'm doing this so that you'll know I'm from the Father. I'm doing this so you'll know that the Father sent me. That's not their great concern. Their great concern is something else entirely. Look at verse 48. 
If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. The religious leaders don't really have any thought about what God is doing in this or not. They just, all they care about is their spot. Listen, we're you know, obviously very important people. We're running the show. And this guy could run it doing these big signs for God and whatnot. Raising the dead. Oh no, does that mean I'm going to get a demotion? You see, see the thought process there. If we keep letting him go on like this, he's going to keep doing these things and people are going to believe him. We've got to keep Rome chill because if things get volatile, Rome's going to come in and they're going to ruin everything. And it turns out that a guy named Caiaphas, it's the high priest that year, it says it in the Gospel of John. History tells us he was actually, not just that year, it's like 18 years he had been... It's funny as an aside, I don't want you to get distracted, but isn't it funny how often there can be a political leader who once that person finds power, they like to keep power, they like to keep that place, I mean, in office for a long, long, long time. I'm In the American experience, I'm sure we're going to discover that at some point. You know, somebody will be, uh, you know, leader of a party for a long, 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 long time, both, both sides, right? But anyway, 18 years, so he's somebody of standing. Everybody knows who Caiaphas is, and he unwittingly prophesies. Uh, I like the first part of it because uh, at, the, at the end of verse 49, it says, he begins this way. You know nothing at all. Y- y'all are a bunch of ignoramuses, is kind of what he's saying. And you think, that's not very nice. It doesn't sound very nice. And, and history says this about Caiaphas. It says, what do we know about him? He ruled for a long time. He's a very self-important person. And like most self-important people, he's rude. And true to form, he's being rude here. You guys don't know anything. And then he goes on to unwittingly uh, prophesy. He says, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not the whole nation, not that the whole nation should perish. And John comments on this. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he spoke about what God would do through him. What he means is we'll kill Jesus and that will save the nation. And what God means is you'll kill Jesus and that's going to save people eternally. His prophecy is one will die for many. One will die instead of many. And they, they plot, verse 53. They're going to kill him. Now just pause there for a second. Why would you kill him? Just raise somebody from the dead. He's going to kill him for a good thing, a great thing. It's a great good thing Jesus did. And they want to kill him. So Jesus left the area, goes to this place called Ephraim. Um, but not, not for long, until it was time. And time is going to be soon. Now that's, there's this, did you notice there's an arc to the narrative? Like most narratives... You kind of see it go up or, or down or whatnot, and what you expect and what you get are two really different things. What you expect is that it's going to go low, death, high, resurrection, higher, celebration. That's what you expect. This is not what you get. You get it starts low, death, Lazarus is, is in the tomb. It goes high, resurrection, and then lands, it crashes lower, the plot to kill him. And that sets the stage for part two of the Gospel of John. Um, John's Gospel, like we've said, is all about who Jesus is. And he shows it and what he says and what he does. And his whole point is once you see who Jesus is, you're going to see what God is doing through him. This is God the Son. This is God come to be with us. 
and you should believe in him. Because that's the difference between life and death. That's the difference between your sins being forgiven and you having life. Now, with that being John's point, out of this passage, I want to raise three issues. And uh, all of those, each of those, encourages us to, yes, believe. Okay, three issues. Three issues from issue to insight. First one is this. Why the weeping? And there's, a, there's this kind of dissonance whenever you not just read it, but also read people talking about John 11, in particular, John 11.35. Now, John 11.35 is the shortest verse in the Bible. And the reason we know that is because evangelicals sometime back started doing memory verse competitions, right? And so everybody knows John 11.35 because you remember Jesus wept, and that's a point. That's a verse that you memorize. Two words, Jesus wept. But the people around Jesus are weeping, and this is his friend, and a person he knows, he's connected to him, and, and it looks like Jesus sees this, and he's got his own things, and just, uh, he gets pulled into their grief, he's got his own grief, and everything comes out. What should we make of that? Jesus wept. Very profound. Now, here's where the dissonance comes up. Why? Why is it, like, in four minutes or whatever, I mean, just talks. He doesn't go through this big thing. Lazarus is going to be coming out of the grave. Why is he crying? He's not, and, and evidently he doesn't have the personality like, ah, watch this, you know, none of that. Why is he uh, doing this? Because he knows, get this, he knows he's about to raise Lazarus. He laid that out even before he began his journey with his disciples. He tips his hand to the uh, to Martha whenever he's talking to her. And I think this fact, the fact that Jesus knows that this isn't the end for Lazarus, and we all know that, makes people say that whatever else it is, whatever, whatever else goes into John eleven thirty five, 35, Jesus wept, it can't be for Lazarus. Because he knows. It can't be why he's grieving. But that's not the way it really works, is it? Um, your child can be in real pain but not in real danger and does that move you? moves me um, and, and, and who are you in that situation? remember you know you know it's temporary you know it's all going to work out you know it's not the end who are you in that situation? are you Spock? ever the rational one? You know, because emotions are candlesticks that needn't be burned when you've got the electricity of logic. You know, who are you there? Like, no, listen, when you're connected to somebody and they're hurt, I could give you a hundred examples of this, but just say, your 17-year-old son comes home uh, one day from school and he's coming undone. He's, he's basically, you can just watch him disintegrating emotionally. And it turns out he's brokenhearted. This girl that, that he's liked and they've been a thing for a while, she doesn't like him back anymore. And his whole world has fallen apart. And he's crying and he's, he's like no good. He can't sleep, he can't eat, he's miserable all the time. And do you just go, well, that's not the end. I mean, like, listen, dude, you're 17, you don't know anything. And it's true, 17-year-olds don't know much, right? You don't know anything. And in, seven, you know, like another 17 years, you're still just going to be 34. That's a relatively short life, and you're probably not even going to remember her. Or you're going to think, I just dodged a bullet. You know, right? 
you're going to be like, woo, that was a good thing, not a bad thing. But that's not what you do whenever your child comes home devastated and they don't know that and you get pulled into their experience. You move with them. Their pain is your pain. They take it, you take it on, right? That's not the way it works. We don't look at it and go like, listen, I know my son's going to be fine. Just a few years. You know, I know my child's going to be fine. It's just a few years. It's not the way it works. People are right to say, uh, remember that Jesus weeps, and in verse 36, they go, look how he loved him. They're right to say that. Uh, their pain and death with all it means moves him. So Jesus weeps. He has a lot going on. Death is always a sign, every time, of how bad and how sad things are, every time. And it's a sign that there's nothing we can do about it. So what do you see in the weeping of the Son of God? You see solidarity. He's one of us. He's with us. You know, all those things that you've tasted, all those things that you've gone through, all those things that just make you feel like you're coming undone, we worship a God who's tasted all of that, who's born all of that. You go, yeah, well, Jesus never sinned. Well, he bears it all. Um, he knows what it's like. The, we, we see that the Son of God is also the Son of Man, that God the Son entered into our world, entered into who we are, and became one of us and experienced everything that we have. You might put it this way. You worship a God who knows. Jesus gets it. And he gets you. You might live in such a way that you go, I don't know if anybody understands me. Um, like, I don't know what it's, maybe nobody else knows what it's like to be isolated like me. Yeah? Jesus does. Why the weeping? Solidarity. He's one of us. Second issue, why the resurrection? Right? I mean, uh, this isn't something that Jesus does willy-nilly. It's a, it's a rare work for him and never like this. I mean, this is, uh, this is, you know, you have to ask the question, I think, why does he do this? Because it's obviously intentional. He waits and then he goes and obviously all of that is to set up this resurrection scenario. He's not just responding to the multitude like we see him so often do. Somebody comes to him and says, hey, this person is sick. You know, my, my, uh, my son has died, my daughter's died, something like that. It's not like that. He waits, then he goes, and it's obviously to set up this resurrection scenario. And in John's gospel, this would be the seventh and the final sign, if you keep track of those things, of his public ministry. Now consider the power to raise somebody. Authority over death. And he doesn't do it very much. Um, what does this mean? Well, it's what Jesus himself will do, right? We're supposed to look at Lazarus and see what's to come ahead. It's what Jesus himself will do. He's going to lay down his life and take it up again. And it's what Jesus will do for you. Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. It's in your future. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Um, sin brings you death. Jesus brings you life. So this is Jesus. This is the one who comes to the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come out. 
The, the resurrection of Lazarus is a sign of your salvation. Right? It's, a, it's a picture. It's an image of your salvation. It's a sign of that. You're dead. You're in the tomb. And you get called from the tomb by Jesus who says your name. So it's me, Stace, Stacy, come out. It could be you. It could be Wally, come out. Right? Drew, come out. Carrie, come out. It's, your, it's who you are. Janessa, come out. The Lord Jesus speaks with His authority and with His grace and He calls you out. You're dead, you're called from the tomb, you're brought to life all by the power of Jesus. The resurrection of Lazarus is a picture of the work that He's going to do for those who believe. It's a picture of your salvation. And He does this to call His shot so that you know that He didn't back into this, this wasn't some accident, this is what He's going for. He's taken aim at death, the thing that makes him break down and cry. Okay? Why resurrection? To show your salvation what it really is. Third issue is the prophecy. It's kind of the fun one. Um, why does John put this in? Because you've got Caiaphas, like the, like the leader of the, the bad guys, and you know he's sort of a moron in the story, right? He says things, and he means one thing, and God's actually using it for another. He's playing chess with God. He doesn't even know it, and he's not going to win. And so he's saying one thing, and he's meaning one thing, and God is, is using the same words for something else entirely. Caiaphas says, essentially, this is the way it's going to work, guys. We know what we're doing here. We're going to kill Jesus, and it's going to save everybody else. And God says, that's right. One of my favorite proverbs on politics and government is Proverbs 21.1. This is what it says. It says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. Say that part again. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And he does with it whatever he pleases. So in our minds, the elite, the most powerful, they make these decisions. What can you do about it? Nothing. And all of that is just play in God's hands. Kings decide what they will. God decides what he will. We do our thing. God accomplishes his thing. Our things are never outside his frame. In short, it looks like this. God trumps man. God trumps man. Why the prophecy? Sovereignty. There's no accident. You know, right? Caiaphas is scheming and planning and he's leading his guys. They're going to do this. We're going to win. We're going to keep Rome off. And this guy who's like robbing us of our well-deserved influence of self-importance, right? You know, and tradition and all that. We're going to take him out. Caiaphas plans to destroy Jesus to save their world. He speaks better than he knows. The leaders think they're in charge. How unimportant important people are. There is no move we make in which God cannot and does not accomplish His will. They do evil. God uses it for good. You don't have a force in your life, believer, somebody that can trump God. You don't worship a God who has a good chance. Like we're not backing the, the one we think is maybe a winner, most likely the winner. You worship a God who reversed your, your sin story by His wisdom and by His might and by His great love for you. You worship one who's in control. Our God is sovereign. So if you believe, you needn't worry a bit. Because if you die, 
even that, yet shall you live. Because God himself will see to that. He's done that through Jesus. All right, let's pray. God, we see in the picture of, uh, of what happened with Lazarus, what Jesus will do in our lives. Bring life from death, all by the power of his word and his grace and how he stood in our place. The wages of sin is death, and Jesus brings life. Thank you for this free gift. May everybody in this room believe and have eternal life. We say this recognizing what a good God you are, how gracious you are, and how powerful you are to defeat our greatest enemy. We love you. We thank you for Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.